it's the most enriching experience you'll have to have ownership of your investments in portfolio, um, the way you do with Motley Fool One or, or many of the services. Thing for my family, for our just our peace of mind. What's it like to do a show all by yourself? We're about to find out. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen, joined by by no one, joined by Bradley and Heather, our producers here behind the camera. But it's just me today. We're doing an all-mailbag show, getting caught up on some old questions here. But first, the NCAA bracket is out. My pick, Duke, is not looking too hot down in the Midwest bracket with Louisville, Michigan, Wichita State. It's going to be a rough road, but got to stick with my early prediction. Going to the first question from the mailbag, it is from... Joe Anderson in Vancouver. He says, in Berkshire Hathaway's latest annual letter, Warren Buffett seems extremely bullish on Bank of America. I am therefore considering investing in Bank of America warrants to make what is essentially a leveraged bet on the company. What's good for Warren must be a good move for me, right? I say that tongue firmly planted in cheek. Seriously, though, would you invest in these warrants yourselves? And if yes, would you have a preference between the A and the B warrants and why? So again, that's from Joe Anderson in Vancouver. Very interesting question here, and just uh, some backstory on the the warrants here. These are TARP warrants that were issued to the government as part of the TARP bailout to give the government some upside in the stock price uh, if that was to to happen. So they held on to these warrants. They subsequently sold them onto the public markets. These now trade freely. You and I can go into our brokerage account and buy these warrants. So Bank of America has warrants. Some of the other big banks have have warrants, uh, AIG, Wells Fargo, and even some of the smaller ones like PNC. I actually personally own PNC and Capital One warrants. I do not own Bank of America warrants, but we can talk about those a little bit right now. So what is a warrant? It's essentially a long-dated call option on the company. So most call options don't usually span years and years and years. These warrants do not expire for nearly five years. It's give or take a couple months there, so five years from today. And what does it give you the right to do? It gives you the right to buy Bank of America at a certain price for a price today. So you buy the warrant today, and then it gives you the right to buy at a certain price. So what are these certain prices? He mentions the Class A warrants and the Class B warrants. So for the Class A warrants, the price to buy, the strike price, if you will, is $13.30, all else equal. And Class B, the strike price is not till $30.79, all else equal. So what do they cost today? If you want to have the right to buy Bank of America at $13.30, you have to pay around $8.30 today. So all else equal, you break even when Bank of America hits $21.78. Now looking at the B, the B class, that's obviously a much higher hurdle to get to in terms of $30.79 a share. So those only cost, I think, $0.89 today. So it's not even a dollar today because it has such a long way uh, ahead of it to get there. So what does he mean by leveraged bet in Joe's question? Why is this a leveraged bet? Because you're buying the warrant, it gives you the right to buy. If we just look at the stock price today, say Bank of America gets to to $30 in five years. From a stock perspective, uh, that would be a 75% rise from today's price. But the warrants since you're buying that for the Class A, say the $8.30 today, those wouldn't be worth over 100% what you paid today. So that's why it's a leveraged bet, and it continues to get 
the returns continue to grow as Bank of America's stock price continues to move higher and higher and higher. So also, the downside of leverage here, if these do not hit their strike price within five years, you lose all of your investment. It's 100% loss here. So these are very risky securities. Uh, They're not something that you want to kind of just blindly buy. So these can be very risky if something was to happen, if there's another stock market downturn, if there's another recession. It's very possible that Bank of America does not hit these strike prices or is not sitting above the strike prices when these warrants expire and you would lose 100% of your investment today. One more thing I'll say about these. Why do I keep saying all else equal? There are some provisions in here that reduce that strike price when Bank of America pays a dividend over a certain amount. So Bank of America, I guess, infamously is paying a one penny dividend today. A lot of people are thinking they're going to ask to raise that in the next couple of weeks during the stress test here. And if they do that, that will move the strike price down a little bit for the Class A warrants there. It's not an exact kind of one-for-one. One, uh, a two, uh, two-cent dividend does not reduce it by one penny or anything like that. It's a little bit more complicated. But as they pay dividends, that strike price will come down a little bit. So if you're sitting there confused about everything I just said, that's okay. These are more complex things. They're riskier. Uh, they're a little bit less liquid than, they're a lot less liquid than the common shares of Bank of America, but you can go on and buy them in, on your brokerage account, on most brokerages. Uh, but if you do, uh, make sure you understand all the complexities behind it, and also make sure to use a limit order in case you're, uh, you don't want to move the market uh, if you're trying to buy a lot of these at a certain time, because not a lot of people are trading them. So the last thing I'll say, actually, I lied, is if I were to buy one of these, I would probably go with the Class A because the hurdle isn't quite so high. It's a little bit, it's not as, doesn't have as much upside as the Class B if they get there, but I would be comfortable with the Class A if it was me. All right, moving on to the next question from the mailbag. This one is from Raphael, I think. Yeah, here we go. He says, I recently got my graduate degree and had to take some significant student loans. I started paying paying back my loans and they currently carry high interest, 6.5%. I'm considering rolling them into a lower interest rate when available in the future. My question is, how would you split your remaining monthly income between investing and paying back the loans, in addition to the regular payment to reduce the principal? I already heard the common answer where if you think that you can get a higher interest in the stock market, you should invest in stocks. But if not, I I would put 100% back into my loans. What would you do in my shoes? So again, that's from Raphael there. And we're actually going to cut away to uh, our senior advisor on our Rule Your Retirement Service, Robert Brokamp, answered a very similar question just a couple months ago. So we're going to cut away to get his take on this answer. Hello, everyone. I'm Robert Brokamp, the senior advisor for the Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement Service. And as part of our Ask the Fool series, here's a question we got from our Facebook page. How do I determine how much I should save for retirement versus paying off my student loans? Well, the first thing I think you should do is contribute to your company 401k plan, especially if your employer is going to match those contributions. Contributing to a 401k plan has all kinds of tax benefits, but then if you get a match, that's free money from your employer. It's a great idea to take advantage of that. Beyond that, it's probably still a better idea to max out your 401k, save for retirement. You, of course, still want to pay the student loans the minimum payment, but the thing about student loans is the interest rate is low, and for many people, the interest is tax deductible. So that makes it a very low interest rate loan. 
you're probably better off taking advantage of the tax advantages of a 401k or an IRA, as well as the potential higher growth of the investments that you buy within those accounts. But that said, paying off debt is a guaranteed return. You're not going to get any guarantees from investments you buy in your 401k or IRA. But if you pay off debt, that's a guaranteed return, and you might just feel better about that. So take advantage of the match if you have one, and then focus on the debt if that just makes you feel better. Just remember that for every decade or so that you put off saving for retirement, you basically cut what you'll have for retirement in half. So you want to start saving as much as you can as soon as you can. All right, so there you have it. That was Robert Brokamp's take on his situation there. I will say what, what I would do in the situation, he asked me. I, like Robert suggested, I would try to max out all my uh, tax advantage accounts there. Then, personally, I would try to pay down the debt because, again, like he says, that's a guaranteed return, and then I would think about investing in stocks going forward. All right, going on to the third question of the day. This is from Ryan in Stony Creek, Ontario. He says, I work at a Canadian bank and heard an ad for a service called Betterment. Do you think the business model like this could succeed? And would it be a threat to my advisory job? In 20 years, will advisors even exist? So what is Betterment? Betterment is an online platform that you can basically link your accounts to, and they will allocate it into various ETFs, stock ETFs, bond ETFs, uh, based on your kind of risk tolerance, and it'll manage that for you. You don't have to worry about going in and buying your stocks. It'll do it automatically, and they charge a very, very small fee for that. Uh, for those of you watching, we have kind of what it looks like here. It can be as low as 0.15% on the account there, uh, and that includes kind of the, the ETF fees that they charge and also the fees that Betterment charge on top of that. So very, very small here, and this is essentially... a set it and forget it type thing. You link your account and you can say, I want $100 every month to go into my Betterment account, and then they'll take care of allocating that out uh, to the various uh, accounts as they see fit based on what you've told them in the past. They're not the only ones doing this out there. There's a company called Wealthfront that does something very similar here. Uh, In terms of, is this a threat to the advisory business? Um, I would say yes to some advisors it is. Uh, To advisors that simply aren't good at advising their clients, this is a threat. I mean, if, you're in a, if there's an advisor out there that's charging very high fees, doing a service that's continually losing to the market, uh, not giving good advice, not good financial planning out there, this certainly is a threat to that business. And good, we are all for that here at The Molly Fool, is having people realize that they're not, that they can be with advisors that are not looking uh, in their best interest here. So in terms of that, yes. Uh, in terms of very good advisors, I would say no. I think in 20 years there will still be very good financial advisors out there that kind of justify the fees that they charge uh, in, in terms of tax planning, estate planning, looking forward uh, generationally here. I think there is still definitely a spot for financial advisors like that. And also the stuff that we're doing here at The Motley Fool in terms of recommending individual stocks and trying to beat the market for the investor that wants to be a little bit more involved, wants to understand their portfolio. So I think there's definitely a spot for services like Wealthfront and Betterment. Is it a threat to some advisors? Yes. All advisors know, uh, but I think it is a good service, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see more companies like this come up in the next couple of years. All right, going on to the fourth question of the day. This is from Travis. This is a simple one. He says, I'm looking for a good financial ETF to hold for the extremely long term. What would your recommendations be? That's from Travis. 
uh, extremely long-term investors and just an ETF that you want to get in and hold for a, a very, very long time, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find something better than a Vanguard ETF. Uh, and the ticker there for the Vanguard Financials ETF is VFH. Uh, there are also ETFs out there. XLF is another financial one. Uh, the Vanguard one's a little bit more diversified in terms of uh, companies at the top. The biggest financial companies don't make up as uh, big of a percentage of the overall holdings there. So Vanguard, you're getting very low fees, exposure to big banks, but also the smaller ones. You'll get exposure to Berkshire Hathaway, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. That's all in the Vanguard Financials ETF. And uh, the expenses there is less than 0.2% for the year. All right, moving on to the final question of the day. This is from Mark Benjaminson. He says, I was wondering how you get around the psychological hurdle of buying more shares of a company you love when it's had a big run-up in a short period of time. Example, I purchased Under Armour at $79 and love the company. I think it's going to continue to do well. But with its big run in the last few months, I'm having a hard time pulling the trigger on more shares. Again, that's from Mark. It's a really good question. I'm sure everyone's had this I guess it's a problem. It's really a high-class problem when a company that you like has run up a lot and you want to buy more shares, and it's really hard to pull the trigger. You look at it and say, man, it just it, there's no way this thing can go any higher. It's had such a great run. I don't want to risk buying more and then kind of ruining what I've already made here. I would say it's possible. You can do it, and the easiest way for me to do it is put some numbers to the situation. It's very easy to look at the chart and see the big run-up and say, that's all it can take. But when you put some numbers on the page, that can make it a lot easier. So just do a simple valuation kind of analysis for over the next couple of years. Uh, we don't need to get, you don't need to get into a complex discounted cash flow models or a complex uh, comp model. You can just do some very simple math to get your head around that. So if you look at Under Armour and say, here's the price today, based on what I know and what the company's been saying, what, are, what does the industry look like? This is what I think they can grow revenue at, grow operating income at, grow free cash flow at for the next couple of years. And what's a reasonable multiple that that could be at? Or give it a range. Try a couple multiples uh, out there, three to five year range, and just get your head around, does this still make sense? And if it's a company that you really like, continues to grow, that'll help you look at the price and say, yes, it's more than what I initially paid for, but given everything I know today, I can buy this and feel good about it. All right. That's all the questions we have for today. I hope I didn't completely bore you to death. It was just me talking. I'll be back here tomorrow with someone else. I promise it won't just be me. But in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. We are at TMF Financials. We are on Facebook, Motley Fool Financial Sector Coverage. And of course, you can send us the emails. That's how we get these questions. It's WTMI at Fool.com. Actually, I lied. We will not be back tomorrow. We will be back Thursday. I'm sorry. So we will see you then. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.